The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It's Tuesday, December 9th, and a very blustery, terrible Nor'easter day here in New York City. It is the 9th of December, and you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Rocco. And we are coming to you live from Blastoff Studios, as usual, here in Times Square. I am very excited this morning because I'm with a very special guest who we'll get to in a couple of minutes, uh, Nikki Field from Sotheby's International Realty, uh, a top star broker in our industry, and we'll get there in a few minutes. In the news, it has been reported that Extel Development sold just one apartment at 157 in the third quarter of this year. 24 of the 94 units at the building remained unsold roughly three years after hitting the market. Bloomberg News is reporting that only three units were sold at the tower this year, clearly indicating that sales have slowed at the tower and face competition from nearby residential developments. Under federal law, mortgage lenders have to run your credit history before issuing a loan, but the mere act of checking your score can lower it. So should you worry that shopping around for a mortgage will ruin your credit? According to Zillow, not really. They advise that the safest bet is to get your mortgage shopping done within two weeks uh, because lenders use a credit scoring model that will only deduplicate checks that occur within a 14-day window. The proposed uh, peer-to-tier tax that we talked about a couple of weeks ago here on the show has generated plenty of controversy, but at this point, it remains unclear how much money the tax would actually raise. City agencies and real estate executives are trying to determine the impact of the tax, including the amount of revenues the levy would raise and to what extent it would boost the local economy. The current proposal would add up to 4% tax on co-ops, condos, and houses that have a market value that's higher than $5 million and aren't being used as primary residents. The top 4% rate would be applied to properties worth more than $25 million. <clears throat> Interesting, Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Braderick lowered the price of their village townhouse by $2 million, originally asking to, uh, $22 million. It is now listed for nineteen point nine five. Top Corcoran Group agents Robbie Brown and Maria Pashby just love those guys, decamped to rival brokerage firm Brown Howard Stevens last week. This, according to The Real Deal, amid a busy year of broker poaching among New York City firms, the latest moves are recruiting are a recruiting coup for Brown Harris, which last week I reported lost top agent Kyle Blockman to Urban Compass. And in New York last week, thousands of New Yorkers and tourists crowded Rockefeller Center to see a 76-foot-tall Norway spruce light up in a blaze of glory. The annual tree lighting has been an official holiday celebration and has kicked off the Christmas season since 1933. Also last week, the Christmas tree was lit in Lincoln Center in their annual holiday celebration. Now, I am so delighted to speak to one of New York's most prominent real estate professionals this morning, Nikki Field, 
uh, Senior Global Real Estate Advisor. She works for Sotheby's International and has done that since 1998. She has created one of the most effective teams in a very competitive Manhattan residential market. We'll talk about that team. She's also an instructor, a graduate of the New York State Real Estate Board's master's program. She loves traveling extensively to emerging markets in China to continue building on growing global business for Sotheby's Internationals. What can I say? I'm a huge fan and welcome. Good morning. Oh, thank you, Vince. I think you've actually said it all. <laughs> you are terrific and, and I'm so happy to have you here. We've spoken a few times this year on, on various panels, but you know, I, we'll get to China in a minute because that's, that's really the important um, piece, I think, of today's conversation. But you are in the real estate industry coming from a very successful marketing industry, and I think you're doing this about 16 years? 16 years, exactly, and I hope I have another I think you will, but let me ask you something. So you come from a very creative marketing background, successful marketing background, created a company that was nationally recognized. What made you switch from that to real estate, and, and, and what was it about real estate that inspired you enough to leave something very successful to move into something brand new? The answer to that is is not that exciting. It was just a quality of life decision and a, and a typical transaction, um, transition rather, from one career to another. I was doing marketing for a number of years with my husband, who happened to own and run one of the country's largest sales promotion agencies. He was a great mentor to me in the business. And then as many families do, I chose to step off the track to raise our two young daughters, did that, um, hope I've done it well, they seem to feel that I have, and, and then decided to get back on track. At that point, my husband's company was quite large, and politically, it would have been the wrong decision for me to step back in as the wife of the owner. So what else do we all do? We look around for a part-time opportunity, and as with many of my friends and so many others in the industry, we thought that real estate would be a transitional part-time job. Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because I came from a, I don't know, 22-plus-year career in technology sales, and although I knew this was going to be more than a, a part-time job, it was a transitional thing for myself as well when I decided to leave, and I never thought it was going to be, you know, 14 years for me, you know, lasting. Uh, and it's interesting, but I wanted to ask you, so you are very successful in this profession of real estate. What is your particular niche? I mean, we'll get to all of the, the foreign stuff in, in a minute, but you come from a very uh, strong marketing background. You took some time off. You come back into the fold. Literally, you know, you skyrocket in 16 years to super superstardom. What is your niche? What is it about something that makes you excited every morning? Two-part question. First, uh, the reason for success. My marketing background is very much a reason for my success. Mm -hmm. Marketing and sales are directly related to what we do every day, representing and selling real estate. Uh, and also, I was fortunate enough to have extraordinary uh, early mentorship. If anyone of your listeners right now are listening uh, and considering going into the real estate industry, find a great mentor. I found that in a gentleman, a legend in our industry, Fred Peters. Fred brought me into his agency. I had not even ever been in a townhouse, and that was my first sale, by Love the way. Love Fred Peters. Fred sat me down and said, hey, gal, you may make it work, but be prepared. It's going to take five years to see not only an income but a comfort level. Well, I was on a fast track, and Fred afforded me additional time, additional mentoring, and um, 
happened a little bit quicker than five years. And I truly believe that that early foundation, that early guidance, that early very clear education on how to do real estate right versus doing real estate wrong, I credit to that mentor. That's that's amazing because I wanted to ask you mentorship. You and I were talking a little bit before we came on air. I didn't know that Fred was in your your background. I think he's amazing and, and terrific. But, you know, I guess as you're growing a team, we're going to talk about the team in a little bit. You have to do a lot of mentoring. A lot of young folk join this business, you know, uh, sometimes with different expectations, sometimes not really knowing what to expect. How do you get people, um, you know, from point A to point Z in a relative period of time with mentoring and, and with, I guess, coaching and ed- education. I find it interesting. I love doing it. What, what, do you, what kinds of tips do you give new beginning young folk in the business? First of all, you have to love it. We all know that. For anyone to be successful, uh, all you need to do is scratch the surface of that success and they say they love <clears throat> what they're doing. New people in this industry don't necessarily take to it with love. It takes some success to unearth that love. And my direction with new people in the business is take your time, find excellent mentors, be in an environment watching and working with some of the best in the industry, and having those uh, professionals as examples often raise your game. One of the first deals I ever did was with another legend in our industry, Sharon Baum. I knew very little about real estate. I was representing a purchaser and she was representing the seller. What I did know is to shut up and say nothing. Mm -hmm. I I let Sharon drive that deal successfully right to the conclusion. I listened. I wrote down notes. I asked questions. And Sharon, with her many years of very significant and well-respected success, was the foundation for my representing buyers in the future. This is what I tell new people in the business. Associate yourself, glob on to someone who's really good, who's as generous as a Vince Rocco, and will spend some time explaining what they do and how they do it well versus doing it poorly. There are a lot of people in the industry that just don't get the right protocol to this business. They, they don't, <clears throat> and you're right. Um, let's talk about business. You are exclusively representing the penthouse homes at the Puck Building. Tell us about that building and its history, and how many of the units there are you, are you dealing with? Is it four or five, six maybe? I can't remember. Penthouses. Oh, thank you, Vince, for this paid sales announcement. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about my latest and, and most favorite child. An unbelievable building. The, the Puck Penthouses, legendary building. If you're a New Yorker, you know it. You've probably gone to a wedding there, bar mitzvah there, an anniversary party. We've all had some of our own history in it. But it is an iconic building built in 1883, built specifically for the um, Puck magazine, which was published in that building. And it was the first um, political commentary magazine in our country. Raised a lot of commotion and probably is the basis for a lot of what talk radio does today. It was bought a number of years ago by a, a really um, impressive development family, the Kushner Companies, and they transferred the building from a aging grand dame to a hip, young, architecturally interesting commercial building. And Kushner's had the foresight to to cordon off a wing of it, the southern end of the office building, and develop six private residential condominium units. Six, which with a sellout of two hundred and four million. We have one in contract, 
one about to go in contract, and four left. All of them are in excess of 5,000 square feet. Three of them have extraordinary outside space. In fact, mm. the, the jewel in the package mm. is the top penthouse. It's 7,200 square feet on the interior and 5,200 square feet on the exterior. It overlooks all of Soho. And the asking price for that is $66 million. That's something else. Let's hold the thought there. We will be right back. We have to take a break. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with Nikki Field, Senior Global Real Estate Advisor from Sotheby's International Real Estate. I want to talk about the foreign market and you seem to be um, one very special broker out here in our New York uh, arena who's, who's not only you know, tackled that market, but seems to do it really well and understand. We're talking about the Chinese. For the first time, the Chinese have become the biggest foreign buyers of apartments in Manhattan, taking the mantle from the Russians, whose activity has dropped off since the unrest in the Ukraine and the imposition of sanctions against Russia by the United States. How are you capitalizing on that movement, Nikki Field? I'm capitalizing on it with great pleasure. It is the most exciting thing that's happened in the Manhattan real estate market in my career. Uh, the fuel that has been generated by specifically mainland Chinese buyers in the last six years is very much part of the economic health of what's happening in our city today. Uh, I, I encourage your listeners to welcome the Chinese, do everything you can to um, embrace not only their participation in our economy, but certainly their interest and eagerness to become New Yorkers. New York is a big, big brand to the Chinese, and they've not been disappointed, at least the ones I've worked with. little history on this. In 2008, when our market flattened, we pretty much looked around and said, what? the world are we going to do as far as selling real estate for this year and the upcoming ones? And um, my team decided that I was expendable. They could handle the business in the city, and they encouraged me to start to travel because we knew that there was a significant recalibration of wealth around the world, and I was sent out to find it. Traveling South America, 
certainly Russia at the time was very strong, hitting Eastern and Western Europe was beneficial, as well as putting my toe in mainland China. What did I do? It was a very simple formula. I contacted wealth managers around the world and let them know that we had resources for their investors. As this money was flowing outside of numerous countries, they were looking for opportunities for wealth securitization. And we're really fortunate in this country, no matter what we think about um, so much of our laws. Our steadfast, secure property laws in the U.S. are really highly regarded throughout the world. You can own your own real estate in this country. Mm. You can buy what you want or certainly what you can afford. You can, in almost all cases, use it as you like, and you can sell it when you want or not. This is a novel concept, particularly in in China. I spent much more time in China after serving the globe because the opportunity was there. Sitting down with wealth managers, they would bring in their clients that had already established significant new wealth portfolios, and they were looking for places to invest. One interesting element that I found out uh, very early in the process was that Chinese investors that have assets over one million generally have one third of their financial portfolio in residential real estate. That compares to U.S. citizens with one million or more who have generally about 17 percent of their financial portfolio in, in residential real estate. So it didn't take a terribly bright broker to figure out that there was going to be some significant action in the Chinese market. Well, as a matter of fact, you told Reuters earlier this year that the Chinese grew to 28.5% of your international business in the first quarter of 14, up from 19% last year. And you said we've only scratched the surface, as you're mentioning now. There's so much wealth out there. You know, how how do you continue to grow that aspect of your business? Is it more trips? Is it just more name recognition in the in the foreign lands? Or how do you how do you get even more of that if it's just scratching the surface of of the team's uh, business at the moment? My my goal here is exposure and credibility. All right, the more successful you are as in any business, the more your name gets passed around. Growing the team was an essential element of actually being able to manage and service the business that was coming in. We're up to 10 10 very uh, specialized, experienced, and and highly motivated brokers on my team. We've just started an Asia desk as well. Head of the Asia desk is a young man named Dan Chang, who has 15 years experience as a wealth manager up in private bank of HSBC. Daniel was a great conduit for making the introductions that were my early business in the Chinese market. And we moved Daniel in uh, a year ago, and he has since brought in another three members of the Asia desk. So that brings me up to um, 13 members, actually. And now Daniel and his team are spending a lot more time in Asia. I need to go there two or three times at the most. They have not only established in the past, great relationships with the Chinese and Chinese wealth managers. They now can very quickly, very succinctly, and very accurately present opportunities that are provided not only here in New York, but in other places as well. We're global advisors, so we may find a Chinese purchaser that is interested in the New York brand for, for multiple reasons, but now wants to diversify and is looking for a weekend home or possibly a um, a resort home 
or hears about the excitement in Miami. We've placed a lot of people with auxiliary investments in in Las Vegas because that's a great opportunity for Las Vegas. Very interesting. Well, first of all, the Chinese, not everyone, and please know when I'm speaking here, I'm I'm generalizing and don't mean to put them on one pot because they're not. They're as diversified in China as we are in America. There are different motivations, there are different personalities, and uh, different goals. But many of the Chinese have an affinity for gambling. So (laughs) so Las Vegas is a very easy direction out. We're really excited about this Chinese market. It is, again, and I cannot state it um, more frequently, fueling our new development market. And we all know the new development in Manhattan is clearly the reason you and I have a job. Many of your listeners have a job here, and it is the future of this city. You're right. You also said in an interview earlier this year that the Chinese buyers typically use to pick up properties in the $1 to $5 million range in New York often buying two and three at a time. Is this is this still continuing? Almost all Chinese buyers call me and say, I have a million dollars that I'd like to spend. What can I buy? Mm-hmm. And that's fine. We welcome a million. We, we welcome 500,000. We welcome 200,000. Our job is to present and expose the opportunities that are in residential real estate. It's a number that resonates to them, and we certainly understand that it is actually not their budget because when they arrive and they're given the overview of the market, they understand in order to secure what they want, they often will have to spend more money. The Chinese have a very similar goal as far as the product they're looking at. They want new almost exclusively. They want views, and they're very interested in modern architecture. They're familiar with it because one need only go to Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong, and many of the other um, growing metropolises of mainland China to understand that the Chinese um, taste for modern architecture is far more sophisticated than the average American. That's what they're seeing. That's what's being built there. That's what they're relating to. How is business conducted in China? Is it is it vastly different than here in in, in America? Even even though they're purchasing here, uh, you know, from a cultural perspective, what 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 goes on? I mean, it, it's got to be different between purchasing something there locally in their own culture than and than working with a, a super successful agent here in New York and purchasing here. There's got to be some kinds of cultural differences or, or nuances that that are different from what they're used to, or not. Boy, did you get that right. Very much so. And when I'm talking to agents in our industry that are putting their foot in the water in China, one of the very first things that I tell them is throw out all your old skill sets. They're no use when you're working with mainland Chinese. This was a twofold question. Again, you asked about China, business in China. Um, my observations for business transactions in China is that they are fraught with delays, mm-hmm. obstacles, and business-as-usual payoffs. That's business in China. That's what they, these buyers come to New York thinking real estate business is. And Eastern business transactions take far, far, far longer uh, to deliver and smaller returns because of the multiple facilitators in each transaction. You know what I'm talking about. If you're doing business in China, you have a whole host of participants that have their finger in that pot. 
that's not true in U.S. business. You know, there is, there are the principals and there are the facilitators, Absolutely. and that's about it. So they come to the U.S. thinking that business will often be the same, and they have their Eastern uh, experience. One of the very first things that we find challenging is we have to establish credibility and trust. My understanding is this new word in Mandarin for trust, and perhaps one of oh. your viewers will look that up and correct me because I've repeated that twice and I want to make certain I'm right. But I am studying Mandarin and I've yet to find a word that means trust as we understand it. So my Chinese buyers will come here. Thankfully, I have some credibility because of the introduction from their wealth manager. But they don't – they're anticipating the experience of Western business to be similar to what they've experienced and it's not. We can't change what they're anticipating, so we have to do our best job possible at educating them on not only how business is done here, but also, and this is really significant to your to your listeners, is to understand that we must adapt to the Eastern protocol of some business skills. And the one that I'm referring to most is the fine, traditional, century-old art of negotiations. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you if you mm. speak Mandarin, but you mentioned just now that you're studying it. So where are you in the in the study process? And how? I mean, I can't even imagine tackling that. I don't think I'd ever get there. Studying certainly doesn't mean that you speak it. <clears throat> started far, far, far <laughs> too late on this. I have, I have a few choice expressions that will break the ice um, and at least gain garner some appreciation for my efforts. Most importantly, in my studies over the last five years, is learning more about Eastern culture, Chinese protocol, and um, understanding business culture as it's performed there because it's essential that you don't misstep here regarding the etiquette. And it, it's a very significant mm. style of, of and process of doing business together. Not only that you don't miss it, but you honor it, you respect it, and you don't make any huge faux pas. I, I totally understand that. Is it safe to say that the, most of the Chinese deals today are still all cash? Or is it- I know you're hearing differently because so many of uh, of our uh, brokers in the industry are saying that they're starting to see um, financing. I haven't yet. I mean, let's let's go back to the basics. Why are international investors buying residential real estate to transfer and secure their liquidity? It's not to take on debt. So almost all of them will come in with. Cash in hand. And let's go back to your last question. They start with a million. They usually, their first transactions actually are somewhere between a million and five million. Once they're comfortable with the process, once they're comfortable with their advisors, once they're comfortable with the surrounding services, you get the call either at closing or just after closing. I have another X amount that I'd like to buy. Will you work with me? So it is a uh, rescue risk-adverse initial introduction, once they find that they're comfortable with it, they'll proceed and their numbers are growing and their purchase prices are also growing. Clearly, you do know that there's right now 101 new developments in the ground in Manhattan alone, Manhattan. Mm. And we were hoping to move a lot of that development with our mainland Chinese investors. All right, we have to take a break, but we will be back in just a minute. Don't go away.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll free in North America at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back with Nikki Field. We're going to hold her over for a few more minutes because her conversation is fascinating. I wanted to ask you, um, at the top of the show, I mentioned the, the slowdown in sales at 157. Uh, what, what, what do you think is behind that? I mean, I think it was one unit was sold this quarter and three all of uh, this year in 2014. Mind you, the building took off like a rocket, you know, when it first was opened up. And now there's so much competition. What do you think the real slowdown is about? Is it competition? Contrary to your news report, <laughs> contrary to what uh-huh. your listeners heard at the top of the hour, I, I certainly disagree <laughs> with this report. And I actually will we'll give you some data. Please do. Last week, last Wednesday, to be exact, I closed on a $48 million tower full floor at 157. Last month, just five and a half weeks ago, I closed on a $56 million tower floor at 157. Today, I am working on delivering a resale of a full floor with an asking price of $62 million. Whatever the press would <laughs> See, like to say. See, this is why you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the press would like to report, I'm, I believe personally, and certainly my grandchildren will inherit some of, of the commissions that I've earned, um, feel that 157 is possibly one of the best economic stimuluses in New York in the last three years. What happened? In 2000, late 2011, early 2012, when this pro- project went out, it was the it was the only guy standing, Gary Barnett and Extel, had extraordinary courage to continue to build this project when literally every mm. single one of his competitors took their shovels out of the ground. The banks kept funding him. They stuck by this guy. If we ever going to talk about a visionary, that's who we have. Gary Barnett, he was either the stupidest man in real estate in those years or the most courageous, and I believe it turned out to be the courageous. And I this agree. is not a, 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 a an ode to Gary. It's not his his birthday or anything, but certainly <laughs> the vibrancy of the sales at 157 fueled this new development market that we're all talking about. His success, that early press, remember the New York Times article, top of the fold about the billionaire building, 
Uh, I was quoted in that. And we were, we were knocked over because we had all of these clients clamoring to move their funds to New York and nowhere to put them until 157 appeared on the horizon. And let me tell you, that product is not only superior to many of the new development projects because they had a lot of time to pull it together, it still will probably go down in the annals of the Harvard Business School as one of the most superior, successful projects of all time. There's a lot more to sell there. I realize I think he has a little less than 20%, but he held back on that. That was a smart move on his part. He didn't lay it all out. And those remaining sales, which he's held back on and hasn't released most of them, will be an extraordinary success. I thank you so much for that. When I read the the news report, I don't know, uh, end of last week, early this week, I thought something is not right with this. But listen, you know, you're only as good as the news being reported. Thank you. And I did have a sneaky feeling that you were behind at least a couple couple of those <laughs> recently. So last thoughts on the on the foreign market. Where do you see not only the Chinese, but the foreign market in general going in 2015? A repeat of 14? Better? Worse? Well, there are a lot smarter people in the industry than me. And, and many of them run these development companies. And they certainly are betting on the market continuing. I get weekly calls from new guys in the business, new developers, some of them from outside of New York, some of them at smaller levels in the past in New York. They're coming in big. You only need to look at the scarcity of land available. Look at the scarcity of land and the new price point that's being paid. These guys believe we've got to run. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how much more money is coming our way in, in, in New York, but I must tell you that I feel that it is imperative that we continue to be attractive to international investors. That brings us to obviously the, um, the debate on the pied de tax as well as other restrictions for international buyers. As someone in this industry, I think the pied de tax, because it will get so much, um, buzz and so much publicity that the perception that New York may be handicapped investors will do one thing. It'll send them to Washington, Miami, Chicago, Boston, where that additional pied-a-terre tax does not exist. I think I know the answer to this last question, but what is next for Nikki Field? I mean, you've, you've done so much. You've come so far in a very short period of time in this industry. You've conquered it beyond. What's next? My most current goal is possibly to get an invitation to come back to the Vince Rocco show. <laughs> <laughs> That's an open invitation. Absolutely no worries. I think um, mine certainly is to continue to grow the team, continue to work with my international brand, Sotheby's International Real Estate. But most specifically, be on the ground helping to work out this new challenge we have in the cooperative market in Manhattan. And that's another show. There is definitely a change in the perception, the values of the co-op market versus the condo. And we have to do something to uh, stabilize the um, diminishing return values in the co-op, which makes up 82% of a residential market. Nikki Field, Sotheby's International Realty, thank you so much for being here. We have to take a break. We'll be back in a moment. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we're back, and we were just talking to Nikki Field. Superstar uh, agent here in New York from Sotheby's International Realty. Uh, we have our panel with us now. Hello, everybody. Good morning, and thanks for being here. Good morning. Good morning. We're, Good morning. Talking, we're talking to Ivy Ray from Blue Realty, Deborah Hoffman, Town Residential, Parul Brombat from Core, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, uh, Rachel Altschuler from Douglas Elliman, and Avi Alkatser from Blue Realty. So we want to talk a little bit today about what to watch for in 2015. A lot of the commentary we're going to hear this out this morning, you know, we've gone through a couple of times throughout, but as we go into 2015, you know, Lord knows, as Nikki just said, no one has a crystal ball and the ball keeps moving. So we don't know necessarily where we are going to end this year or into next year. After the frenzied sales of 2013, and we reported this a couple of weeks ago, New York City's real estate market didn't miss a beat in 14, though its pace showed signs of stabilizing even as prices reached new heights. Despite the overall market's widely described return to normal, whatever normal means, the co-op market saw its record for the priciest residential sale topple three times. Actually, the co-op market, we're going to talk about that again in the next couple of weeks because even as Nikki said as she was leaving – That's a big topic to talk about. It's completely changing the face of New York real estate. In September, hedge fund manager Israel Englander paid $71.3 million for duplex co-op at 740 Park Avenue on the heels of the $70 million sale of the late Edgar Bronfman's penthouse at 960 Fifth Avenue to Egyptian uh, billionaire Nasif Suarez, whatever. They were both, (laughs) say that one twice, (laughs) three times. They were both outdone less than a month later when a billionaire Leonard Blotnick dropped $80 million for the unit at 834 Fifth Avenue. We reported this a couple of weeks ago as well, owned by the New York Jets owner Woody uh, Johnson. I mean, it's just amazing to me where these numbers come from. Many new condo developments will make their debut more than double in 2014. So I ask all of you out there who are feet on the street, as I always say, will these units sell double what came out in 14, and who will they sell to? That's an awful lot of new units out there on the marketplace. Yeah, my question to ask it, to actually compound your question is, do we have a good sense of what the price points are going to be in these new developments? And that, you know, it determines so much because there's so much going on in the city that's been so high end. And are we really going to get delivered some more moderate 
mid-priced well, I, I think that probably it's safe to say that you know two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars per square foot would be the the low end of where we are, uh, or will we we will see pricing coming out in the new wave in two thousand and fifteen? Unless you know any of you know differently than I, and of course wow. certainly up to four, five, six thousand dollars per foot, depending on the unit size, depending on the building, depending on a lot of things. The the puck penthouses, obviously, that Nikki was talking about, they're priced you know accordingly. So. You know, I, I still want to know, though, who, who is going to be buying these, these units? I mean, we talk about foreign investors, but can any of us represent that there are domestic or local buyers here in New York? Are they going to be purchasing these, these units? The prices are crazy. Well, I think what's been really driving all the prices, and we'll all agree on this, is the lack of inventory in every sector. And no. every sector feeds off of each other. So I think that people can only hold on to not selling when they feel they have to, only so long. And we saw this during the recession for people who were holding on until the, the right price point in their mind came up, no matter where they were, and then they put their homes on the market. I think this is happening again, that prices are rising quickly. We will get a lot more inventory. And whatever happens in the, and I put this in quotes, lower end market, maybe the 2000 per square foot or less, will affect the higher end market. I think to jump in, based on what Ivy said about moderately priced apartments, I think what Vin said, based on double the amount of supply in new development launches from 2014 to 2015, it's just simple economics and supply and demand. So, you know, I know we've seen uh, significant price increases, but if we're doubling the amount of new development inventory, I don't see it going too much higher. I, I, I see it starting to slowly level off. That's, that's my opinion. Wait, I'm and sorry. as much as a lot of people on the higher end, um, if you talk to um, some of the heads of new development at even the larger companies, I see a very bullish attitude towards the luxury high-end market over $10 million and up. Um, however, I personally think that there's a cautionary tale there. Um, it seems that that market is getting oversaturated, in my opinion, just being out there and seeing what is available versus what is not. And what's driving that is land prices um, in Manhattan specifically, but Absolutely. also at this point in yeah. Brooklyn as well. Um, I just don't know. I don't know how many people out there are going to be looking to buy, you know, the $10 million plus uh, dollar homes here um, in con- and how, how much that demand will continue. Yet there's such a huge demand in the new development space for the quote-unquote lower-priced apartments, I would say under $3 million. Um, and that market is shrinking, especially for about a million, million, half, two million. There really isn't that much out there in new development, and I think that there is a lot of demand there that is not being met. Yeah, Here, Here's something that I was a little fascinated by when I was doing this research. Condo developers are bringing a crop of boutique buildings, operative word there, boutique mm. buildings, to the market, each crafted with a level of attention and care aimed at drawing discerning buyers. So will this trend continue, and is the new luxury building a boutique building? You know, here I've sold new development buildings for years, as most of you know, and they're, you know, big tall towers and and whatever, 100-plus units. Now, we all know what a boutique building is. I was a little surprised at this because I haven't seen so many of them myself, but is this really a trend these days, and why is it continuing? I, you know, it's I one of my favorite things in real estate. It's one of my, can you not hear me? Who's that? 
It's one of my favorite things. In, it's one of my favorite things in real estate, the boutique buildings. And I was thrilled to see that when I read that recently as well. Mm-hmm. My big concern, again, I'm going to keep talking about how uh, I think Parole just bought it up. The land prices have been so high. So a good percentage of what's going to be coming out on the market, the developers are going to have to sell given what it is that they paid. I mean, we heard about, what is it, the Michael Schvo building, the thing he purchased downtown? The crazy (laughs) price per square foot that that the developers are paying for these. So it's, you know, I think the boutique buildings, the ones that we just recently read about, the price per square foot is nuts on them. So, but I'm I'm just a big fan of having small um, Uh, developments opening up. I'm a huge fan of of boutique. uh, Parul, you wanted to say something on that? Because I think this is a fascinating uh, topic that we'll cover even more in detail in the next couple of weeks. Did you want to say something on that? Well, all I was saying is um, I think that a lot of um, discerning buyers on the luxury end um, prefer the boutique buildings because they get a little more anonymity. Um, I think that with all the publicity that hits the larger sort of, you know, the Starkitect buildings, um, is something, it's it's interesting because there is a, an echelon of that market. I think the Russians come to mind first and foremost um, who prefer to buy these sort of high-profile, shiny, you know, in you know in the public eye sort of spaces. But there are a lot of people, specifically <clears throat> I would say domestic purchasers on the high end, um, uh, hedge fund owners, whatnot, a lot of them really do, the ones who are, prefer, who are buying their own homes, really like to sort of have exclusivity and quiet around their, you know, just silence around their purchase. And they tend to prefer these boutique buildings where they sort of, you know, don't catch so much of the, of the public, um, public eye. Yeah, I agree with Peru. And what I think is interesting is I've been to a number of these boutique buildings, both uptown and downtown at their sales offices, and looked at them. And I was wondering who was buying there because you're getting a different buyer than you will from the large glass towers. Remember, if it's a boutique building, it might be 10 stories at the most. You're not going to get the views. Many times you're not even going to clear the other buildings in the neighborhood. So sometimes you'll get light. And along the lines of what Perul just said is you're probably going to get people who want more privacy, more exclusivity, and it's going to be a different buyer. I think on that note, there's also a different type of developer, which is explaining why there's a lot of boutique buildings. A lot of my clients right now are first-time, second-time developers, and they're going to go for the boutique um, smaller buildings. Um, And that's why, just as a side note, it's really important as a buyer when you're purchasing new development, you have to know who the developer is because that's going to affect, you know, being able to close and what kind of quality development you're purchasing. I I agree with that. And I think the trend, uh, you know, I'm I'm starting to see the trend with people wanting to get into very small townhouses converting into, you know, four four, uh, four unit condos. Yeah, huge uh, trend. Yep. A huge trend. So I think, you know, boutique, it seems to be, I love that word, but I think it seems to be the, the wave of the future. All right. The average sale price in Manhattan for all kinds of residential properties jumped 18% from last year during the third quarter to $1.68 million average price. Price appreciation in the luxury market was even steeper, obviously based on the, the, the Uber, you know, large apartments and the price per square foot. Will price appreciation in 2015 continue as the, at the same levels as it is today? Again, none of us have a crystal ball, but, you know, with a little leveling off period that we've had this last two yeah. quarters or so, do you see price appreciation uh, continue at the same levels? Well, as Niall said before, it's all supply and demand. 
It all depends how much more supply comes on the market. And in addition, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning, again, about interest rates possibly going up. And if interest rates start to go up, sellers who are afraid they were not going to be able to sell and buy someplace else will start putting their homes on the market. And other buyers are going to get a little more desperate and maybe change their price point. Well, I was going to say interest rates are still at record lows, but it is widely believed that there is going to be a rate increase coming in 2015. And while the Federal Reserve hasn't indicated when, economists point to sometime in mid-June. Are you seeing more deals being done now in anticipation of rate increase? Or do you think the Fed will increase rates just as a new presidential campaign is beginning in 2016? I'm not so convinced that rates are going to go up in 15. But are you seeing people doing deals now more than they would naturally be doing because they feel, fear rather that the uh, rates will be increasing? I think it's a conversation. I, you know, It's certainly in people's minds now. I, heard, I just heard two people yesterday that – Deals that I have that are in, you know, sort of in motion, and they made mention of it, but no one was moving any differently because of it. And it compared to last to- year, where it was kind of like the stigma around the industry, and everyone was frenzied trying to buy. And now this year, you know, because there was there was so much hype about it, and then nothing really happened. You know, I think it, it, that that sentiment has changed, and they're a little bit more confident um, that it, it's going to stay steady. And of course, it will rise. You know, that's that's clear. But I think for now, people aren't you know frenzied like they were a year ago, and they're more patient buyers. And when the right apartment comes to market, they're quick to snatch it up. Niall, do you think do you think that what you brought up about the increase in pricing um, in the market space, and if we're going to see another eighteen percent. Uh, uh, uptick. I think that we have to be careful about how we look at those numbers um, because if there are a lot of a significant number of higher end closings next year, then the numbers will show that there was a rise. However, I don't think that in actuality the market is going to bear um, 18% in the next year. How do you think rate increases will affect mainly, you know, first-time buyers? Because I think those are the ones who really pay closer attention to that. And I still have to bring up, you know, I don't necessarily know with the, you know, beginnings of a, a new presidential campaign uh, in 2015, you know, things sort of freeze and be, get put on hold because they, people just don't know what's happening until a new person is elected. So, I mean, do rate increases really affect these, uh, these first-time buyers as much as I think they do? I mean, I, I, every time I'm dealing with a first-time buyer, all they can talk about is rate increases and, and, and whatever else. And I just I, – I, you know, it's important because, you know, each, each percentage is more in a, in, a, in a payment every month. But, I mean, is it really that important when rates are still historically so, so low? I think a lot of first-time buyers are going to panic on this. And once I do the math for them, meaning whatever the interest rate – is now and then go up maybe a half a point or a quarter of a point. I do the math as to how much more it is a month. Then the buyer usually says, oh, really, that's it? And I say, yeah, there's no reason to panic. It's just I think the market in general, and we've all seen this, is driven a lot by gossip. Whatever we read in the press, we hear in the news, and people don't think it through. And once they think it through, nobody panics, and they buy and sell on their own timetable. Good point. Guys, we have a few minutes left, but I wanted to touch on this one last topic, and then we're going to talk probably a little more about this next week. But following a year that saw top brokers moving from one firm to another, new companies taking top places in the industry, and boutique and mid-sized firms 
giving the top large firms a lot of competition and in some cases a run for their money. What is the future of the real estate firm as we know them today? Why do agents jump firms? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. I think one main thing to just note is that, you know, I think street easy in the transparency that buyers um, have in the marketplace really have leveled the playing field between smaller boutique firms and some of the, you know, giants that have been out there for years dominating the market. And I think for that reason alone, it allows some of the top brokers at larger firms to make, you know, choices to go to smaller firms or vice versa, because it is a level playing field at the end of the day that we're all playing and working with. Yeah, and sometimes they jump because there's a promise of a higher commission split. Um, I know some of my friends have changed because, you know, growth is, is, you know, very healthy, and sometimes you need to change to, in order to grow your business. Um, so there is a lot of movement, but most of the time, I think a good broker is going to stay a while, um, and if they're happy with the culture of their company, mm. um, it's, it's helpful to know, like I've been at Douglas Elements for 12 years, my clients know me as Rachel at Douglas Elements. So if I were to change, it's a, it would be a hard thing for me to do personally just to, to rebrand and do all the, the marketing changes for me. Um, but I know a lot of people like that, that movement. You yeah, know, I made and- a transition from Corcoran to Core a bit ago. Um, and um, the first time I was speaking to a significant um, client who happened to be a developer, um, and then we ended up landing uh, the building, um, when I met him, he hadn't quite heard of Core, which, you know, Core is fairly established or was and was one of these newer companies before. Um, what I immediately said to him is, look, I was at Corcoran and I switched to a smaller firm because um, I think that small is the new big. Um, I think that there is a certain branding component, um, especially if you are tech forward, um, if you have sort of a younger, more uh, polished vibe um, that uh, that is more quality versus quantity driven. So what I, I mean, personally, what I was attracted to making that switch uh, was this understanding that, um, you know, when there's seven, 800 brokers that sort of brand your company, uh, there may not be as much of a brand consistency. Um, when it's a smaller company that's diligently hiring a specific kind of broker, if that is indeed the case, then I think that there is something to be said for the actual brand of the company itself. And to Niall's point, when um, the Internet is sort of uh, leveling the playing field otherwise in terms of data, uh, I think that that's sort of, you know, the, the other side of why it is that the smaller firms or newer firms are, can bring a certain different sort of attractiveness. To, to our All right. Well, you know, I, I agree with well said, Parul, and we're going to talk about a lot more of that because I, I find there's all of a sudden a very fascinating topic between firms, sizes of firms, broker movements, you know, top stars going here, there, and all over the place. So we're going to pick that up next week. Unfortunately, as always, we are out of time. That is Good Morning New York for this week. We thank Nikki Field from Sotheby's International Realty. She's a top star. We are back next Tuesday morning at 9 Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific Time Live. You can always catch the show later in the day on podcast or anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. For all of us at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining. I will see you next time.
Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.